The background of the book of Esther, first of all, it's a hundred years post Babylonian exile. So it's a hundred years after the captivity. It's a hundred years after the exile had happened. It happens before the book of Nehemiah. So it's kind of a really cool setup for burnt stones where we'll be heading to. It actually happens in the same location, the location of Susa. So here's what you have. Book of Esther starts with a guy named King Xerxes. And he's an arrogant, narcissistic, self-centered king. And he has the queen. Her name is Vashti or Vashti, however you feel like pronouncing it. And Vashti, or Vashti, uh, is, is beautiful. She's this extravagant queen. And King Xerxes comes to her and he says to her, I want you to go to this next ball that I'm hosting, and I want you to walk around the ballroom and parade yourself for me. And a, a lot of scholars believe, he said, I want you to wear your crown and show off your beauty for me. A lot believe that he was just saying, I want you to wear just your crown. So I want to I show you off. You are my object of glory, and I want all of the glory to come back to me. And Vashti says, absolutely not. Not having it. Ladies, put your hands together for a strong woman, right? A woman who says, I will not be. <laughs> ah, who are the feminists? We are... No, I'm just kidding. She says, I will not be an object. I will not be shown off for your glory. You will not prance me around naked. That's a good Mother's Day message. Or if you lead like a women's Bible study or something, get ready for that next May, right? She says, I'm not your object. I'm not doing it. He throws her out of the kingdom. He, she is no longer the queen. And instead, he says, okay, you're not my queen anymore. I'm going to find my queen. And he hosts a beauty pageant to bring in women from all over the, the, the nation to find his next queen. And you thought The Bachelor was a, a unique idea, right? You know, it's been happening forever. And, it's, and the results have been just as terrible as they are today, right? So he says, okay, here's a beauty pageant. I want to find my next queen. Meanwhile, Esther is an orphan, and she's being cared for by her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai goes to Esther, who is a Jew, by the way, and, and Mordecai was a leading official with the Jews. And Mordecai says to Esther, hey, did you hear that? The king is having a beauty pageant, and there is none more beautiful than you. I think you should enter. And Esther was like, really? You think so? And he said, yes. But when you enter, kind of keep on the lowdown that you're a Jew. We don't want them to know uh, that you're a Jew, so go for it. Here you go. And so she steps into the beauty pageant, and lo and behold, Esther wins. She becomes the queen. And as she becomes the queen, she's walking into the palace. Mordecai is outside of the palace gates, and there's this man named Haman. And Haman is the right-hand guy to the king. And he is another narcissistic, self-centered, self-glorifying man. And as he's entering into the palace, he comes across Mordecai, and he asks everybody to bow in his presence. And Mordecai was the only man that said, nope, not going to do it. Men, can we make some noise for a strong man? Can we? Can we? Yeah. Wow. Much weaker than the women. So Mordecai says, nope, not doing it, not taking a knee. Haman says, who is that Jew that will not bow at my feet? And Mordecai said, it's me and I only bow to my God. So Haman says, okay, I want Mordecai's head on a stake. 
He said, no, 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 better yet, I want to wipe out the Jews from the face of the planet. I want to extinguish all of them. He drafts this document that basically says the Jews are not going to follow King Xerxes' rule. They're going to overthrow his throne. And if King Xerxes does not wipe them from the face of the planet, his throne will be stolen from him. Xerxes is an arrogant, narcissistic, self-indulged man. He said, nobody's taken my throne. What should we do? Haman says, kill them all. Extinguish them all. And he says, by the way, I'll give you some money and I'll lead the charge. The king agrees to it. He said, fine. I I mean, I guess if that is what it is, extinguish them. Make them go away. Esther chapter 4. It says, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying with a loud and bitter wail. Think about Mordecai for a second. His boldness and his unwillingness to bend a knee to a man has now resulted in the genocide of his people. That would be like someone asking me to take a knee to them and me saying, I only kneel to the Lord. And they said, okay, well, we're not just going to kill you. We're going to kill everybody in the church. And it actually coming about and happening. So Mordecai's horrified. He's broken. He's bitter. He's weeping. He's wailing. Verse 2. Said he went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, they wept and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. That's really important to understand. Verse 5. Then Esther said to Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed as her attendant, she ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So word got back. Mordecai is, is intensely upset. He's weeping outside of the palace and burlap and ashes. And she says, send him some new clothes so he can come in. He refuses it. And she's like, what is going on? So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation. He also asked Hathak to go and direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go down or to go back and reply this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his, royal, in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called me to come, to come to him for the last 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. All right, here's the good stuff. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape what other Jews when other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps 
You were made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. I'm sure you've heard of that story um, and I'm sure you've heard it told in many different ways. There was actually a movie made about it. Let me give you the contextual vibe of what just happened here. And I'll give it to you in the form of a story. Um, Anna and I, anybody familiar with these personality tests that control your life? Like people want to like pronounce, oh, no, that's just what a three would do. You know, huh? sounds like a six to me. You know, I, I get so sick of being diagnosed by my Enneagram number. Anybody else with me? Anybody? Yes. Those of you that are scared to raise your hand because your wife is sitting next to you, just give me the, you know, like, <laughs> like help me. Blink twice if you need help. Blink twice. I see you. I see you other blinking. And so anyway, uh, let me tell you, I am an eight on the Enneagram, which apparently means I'm just a raging psychopath, right? Um, and Anna is a seven, which means, uh, yes, that she uh, plans her limitations for her. Don't plan anything. Just surprise me and let's all just have fun and get along and have a beautiful time. Uh, <laughs> works great for a marriage. What are the two most incompatible numbers on the Enneagram for marriage? Seven and eight. Hey, and we're, we're doing great. So again, these things are lies. Don't listen to them. Um, but anyways, no, they, they're, they're helpful for giving you personality direction, I guess. But uh, we, here's how this works out practically for us. We're going to the grocery store, and we have a baby that is asleep in the back. Parents, you know this drill. When the baby is sleeping and the baby fell asleep while you were driving, you do not stop the car, nor do you get the baby out of the car. What you do is you do a drive-by drop-off of one person, and then you keep that thing moving so that baby does not wake up, right? It is just the rhythm. We got it down, and so we're pulling up to the store. We had to get two things, paper towels and milk. Two things, paper towels and milk. And I said, hey, Anna. Let me do it. I got it. I got it. She said, no, I, I, I want to go in. And she said, you're driving anyway. I said, I can stop this car, park it, get out faster, and you can jump over the seat, and we're gone. She said, no, I, I can do it just as fast as you can. <laughs> ah, right? She's like, I'm serious. And I said, how fast do you think you can do it? She said, seven minutes. <laughs> Look, I'm seasoned. I'm an eight. You already know where my head went. I'm like, I can tell by the amount of cars in this parking lot. That there's two to three deep at every checkout aisle. That's seven minutes right there. And then you got to count for going in, getting the stuff, and coming. I'm like, 11 is a, is a goal, 12 is doable. And she's like, no, I can do it in seven minutes. Uh, okay, fine, you win, go for it. She jumps up. First thing she does is turn this way in the store. Paper towels and milk are this way. I was like, it's over. We're done. <laughs> I already know. So I'm driving around. And I, I start a time, oh, by the way, this is another, fun. so I'm like, okay, here you go, go. I start, no, 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 you can't start it yet, you have to start it when I go inside. Like, okay, go ahead, start the timer, right, 22 minutes later, she comes outside, she's got bags, bags, bags of stuff, she walks outside, I pull up. She's, again, this is just, you know the dynamic. If you know, you know. She looks at me and she says, did, did I make it? <laughs> like me, 
The second I step out of the car, boom, got my timer on. I already know how much. I would have known exactly how many minutes I was over, right? She said, did I I make it in time? I said, 22 minutes. She said, no way. That thing's lying. You you did something. I know you did something. I was like, no, it was 22 minutes, Anna, okay? And so then we get home. And uh, when we get home, uh, the baby's awake, and she's like, well, you grab the stuff out of the car, milk and paper towels. So I go, and I get it, and I walk inside, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, what the heck is this stuff? Like, we got a new Swiffer. We got this, like, non-GMO spray cleaner. We got a dish one. We got, like, clothes. I didn't even know they sold clothes at the grocery store now. But now we got this just stuff everywhere. And I said, okay. I said, where's the paper towels? And she said, dang it! God dang it! I knew I was forgetting something. You had one mission. One mission with two things. Do we need to make a list for two things now? Like, do what you know? And again, I'm I'm messing with Anna. It's just as fun. It's just as crazy for me. I'm the guy who would have had the exact route planned out in there. But the whole point of it was. We had a plan, you went in for something, and we had a timestamp and everything, and when you came out, we didn't even know if we got, you see I'm saying we, right? We, right? I mean, we didn't even know if we got everything that we needed. And so now, guess who does the two-item runs? If, if they actually want to get done, guess who does the two-item runs, right? Me. Why? Because I know the plan, and I know where I'm headed, and I know what I'm doing. Now, look, when we throw a party, guess who's the center of it? Her, not me. I'm the worst at a party. I'm going to walk in there and be like, ah, food looks a little low. What are these people doing over here? Why is this game not happening, right? So we, we found this dynamic, but there is this recentering that is happening with Esther and with Mordecai. In other words, this passage is not an encouragement to Esther. It's a rebuke of Esther. Mordecai is saying, what are you doing? What are you doing in the palace, living it up? What, what, why aren't you doing something about this? And now you're going to give me this excuse? And you're going to tell me, well, I haven't been seen the king in 30 days. And you know, he's a little touch and go when we go visit him. Unannounced. Maybe, just maybe, this is your moment. Maybe this is your time. What Mordecai is doing is he is refocusing Esther on her calling. What I believe God wants to do for us today, and I believe he wants to do it in the next 10 minutes, is I believe he wants to refocus. Focus us on our calling. I believe if we looked at our life right now and we began to take inventory of the things that are most important and the things that we're giving most of our energy to and the things that we're giving most of our life to and we begin to look at these things and if we got really honest with ourselves, we may begin to say, I've got a lot of things distracting me from the calling that God has placed on me. How do I reclaim that? How do I reclaim that purpose that God has placed deep within me? That passion that he has placed for me to do something that I know he has called me to do. Listen, for all of us in here, me included, God has called us to something more. 
God is not, yes, there he, God has not called you to work a nine to five, argue about politics with your coworkers, and then raise your kids and save enough money to retire and then become the babysitter for your grandkids. That, that sounds beautiful, but God has something deeper for you. God has something more for you. God has placed a calling. And what happens is when the more we drift from calling and we begin to get stuck, it, well, let me just preach the point, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through three things really quick with Esther. And I want to refocus us on our calling. I want to refocus us not just corporately as a church. I believe there's, there's two folds to what we're going to do. We're going to refocus corporately to the calling that God has placed on our church. But we're also going to refocus personally to the calling that God has placed in you. Because I bet if I asked every single one, do you believe God has called you to something? Do you believe God has placed something deep within you? You know that he's called you to more than where you're at, but how do you refocus to it? Let's walk through uh, what Mordecai does. First thing he does, Esther 4 verse 13. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment. That is a rebuke. Don't you dare for one second, get lost in a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. In other words, he's saying don't confuse comfort for calling. Don't confuse being comfortable for the calling that God has placed on you. You saw, I, I pointed that out to you, right? That Esther sent him a change of clothes. Let me tell you something. When you, when you were going through mourning and you dressed in burlap and ashes and sackcloth and you went out in front of the people, that was a public display of a united mourning. That was not a personal thing. That was a united thing. That would be like walking into the center of a group of people that are mourning a loss or that are standing for something out of a hurt and a mourn and a lot and say, take that off. What do you, you look silly. Here, put on some other clothes. He said, I refused the clothes. And then he said, go to the king. And she gave him an excuse. And she said, listen, I, the, the king's a little touch and go right now. And I don't know much about it. And he said, don't you think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. I want to be sensitive here, but at the same time, I want, to, I want to pull something in your spirit. I don't know what it is about us, and I think this is more Western Christianity than, than the entire world of Christianity, but there is something within us that thinks that like comfort is the 10th fruit of the Spirit or something. We're like love, joy, peace, patience, kind of feelings, just faith, faithfulness, and uh, comfort. That's, that's the other one, like, right? That's, that's what God should give me, and that's the calling is I want to be comfortable, and I need to figure out how to be comfortable in my life. And, and it's almost like the moment our comfort begins to become compromised, we begin to either blame God or wonder what's wrong spiritually. Oh, I'm not comfortable anymore. Whoa, life is a little difficult right now. Did I make God mad? Every day should be a Friday. What's it? But when I read what Jesus says, when I read when Jesus, even in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are you when you are persecuted, not if, but when. In this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have 
conquered the world, all of a sudden we begin to look at our life and say, okay, have I valued comfort more than calling? When comfort becomes more important than calling, God is no longer in control of our lives. When being comfortable and only being comfortable and solely being comfortable becomes the mission of my life, the mission of my faith, the mission of my ambitions, the mission of what I'm longing for, when that becomes my God, God is no longer in control of my life. Because comfort is not always calling. I love this passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. Listen to Paul when it comes to comfort. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Where does your comfort come from? What is the source of your comfort? I can tell you this, it's not the person you married. It's not your job. It's not your savings account. It's not any of those things. The source of all comfort is our merciful Father and God. Verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Isn't that beautiful? That he says, hey, when you go through troubles, God is the only source that can give you all comfort. And when he does comfort you, he's not just comforting you so you can be comfortable. He's comforting you so that you can be the source of encouraging someone else to be comfortable themselves. And then he says, for, for the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with comfort through Christ. In other words, suffering makes you stronger. Those challenges that you're going through make you stronger. The more you suffer, the more he comforts you. And then in verse 6, even when we are weighed down with troubles, it's for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident. That as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. Where are my uh, CrossFit people? Come on. We all want to make fun of you. Lift your hands. Let us see you. Let us see you so we can laugh at you and, and point you out. And, yeah, anybody who enjoys burpees and box jumps is a psychopath, right? And it was like, oh, what's on the wad today? How, how do I die today? A million deaths by herpes, right? Um, man, I don't know what's wrong with you people, but something happened to me. Uh, COVID, as I've shared with you multiple times, was not very gracious to me, uh, nor to my skinny jeans, right? Um, I, <laughs> we, we did a, it was really, really not funny. We did a online service March of 2020, and we did an online service December of 2020, and we did a side-by-side -side of me entering the services, and it looks like a 10-year difference. I'm like, what happened to me during COVID? I blacked out for six months, and the only thing that arrived through DoorDash was Taco Bell. So um, there you go. That's what happened, right? And so I, I got to this place where I had to do something. I was like, man, I got to do something. 
something, or um, I'm gonna, people are going to think y'all got a new pastor. It's, you know, it's just me. It's just me and Taco Bell. Um, so I decided to do, my gym closed during COVID. It never reopened. So I decided to do a gym in my garage. So I bought this equipment. I put together this gym in my garage. I had this garage gym. And then I was looking for programming, and I found, I don't even know how I found it. The algorithm sabotaged me, and Instagram put this, this CrossFit gym in Sweden called Rope Climb. Put it right on my feet, and I looked at it, and it, they were promoting that they offered 30 minutes or less workouts a day. And I was like, praise God, the shorter the better. I'll take a 30-minute workout program, and it was this CrossFit workout program. So I remember the first day I gave this a shot. I opened it up. There was an eight-minute warm-up, and there was a 10-minute, uh, I call them AMRAP, as many rounds as possible, right? 10 minutes, as many rounds as possible. And it was like your typical box jump, burpee, snatches. Like it's every CrossFit workout, right? And so I was like, okay, 10 minutes, I got this. This is no problem. 10-minute workout, ah, I remember when I ran for hours. <laughs> I used to be an athlete. I can handle 10 minutes of anything, right? I, I think, I think I did two rounds. And I felt like, I, I felt like my lungs were bleeding. I was, I was not wheezing, I was wailing. I was like laying on my back about to die. I don't know what happened to me. I felt like my vision was foggy. I had stuff coming out of my ears and nose and eyes and everything. I was like, this is the end of my life right now in this two-minute workout. It was absolutely unbearable. And so then I thought, well, I'm done with this. <laughs> These days are over, but then I spent all this money on this garage gym, right? So now every time I walk through my garage, I just feel like an even bigger failure. So I said, okay, fine, I'm going to keep going. And I did, and I kept going, and actually something happened. Several months later, I hit my first target. I remember I took a selfie of myself. I was so proud. I was like, what? I hit a 10-minute target. I actually made it in time. And I took a picture and I texted to Anna. And I was like, you'll never believe who's back, you know? Like, I figured this out, right? And I was so pumped up. And then something started to happen. And then the workouts began to get easier. And as they got easier, I began to beat targets. And then when I started beating targets, I started adding things to them. Because, like, man, I still feel like I got a little more left in the tank. The old man's coming back, right? So then I kept adding to it. And now all of a sudden, last week, something happened. I canceled rope climb. It was a six-month run, and it was beautiful. I didn't cancel it because I quit. I canceled it because I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. Because something had happened in me where I learned to go to this place of discomfort and I learned to embrace this place of discomfort because I knew what it was providing for me on the other end of it. Can I tell you something? God only discomforts those that he's destined. God has only discomforted you because he's destined you for something more. God is only bringing you through a season of discomfort because he has a calling on your life and he is trying to stir a new strength within you. What did Paul say? The more I'm uncomfortable, the more I suffer, the more I'm comforted by the Lord. Maybe God wants to give you something more, but he can't give you something more until you're ready to endure what you're in right now. 
Instead of quitting, instead of giving up, instead of getting frustrated, instead of throwing in the towel, instead of making all of these excuses, maybe God is saying, I've got more comfort for you, and I've got more destiny for you. I just need you to go through what I'm bringing you through right now. In other words, Mordecai approaches Esther, and he says, Esther, don't think for a moment that you can avoid it. Embrace the discomfort because your calling is somewhere in that place of discomfort. Number two, Esther 4, 14. He says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, I'll talk to you more about that in a minute. Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. The, the language here in Esther 4, 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, he's actually saying, and the New King James gets it really well, he's saying, if thy holdeth thy peace for a moment. He's saying, if you hold on to your life, if you hold on to your comfort, if you hold on to your peace, if you hold on to what you have, then deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but your relatives will die. It is, it is language reminiscent, and it points to, and the Apostle Paul references it in Philippians 2, 6-11, through 11, the kenosis passage, the, the passage about pouring yourself out. He's saying, Esther, if you just hold on to everything you have right now, you're not going to get where God wants you to go. Philippians 2, 6 through 11, he says, though he was God, he did not think of it equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience and died a criminal's death on a cross. What did Paul just say? Paul said he had it all. He gave it all up. He emptied it out. He poured himself out so that he could become what God wanted him to become, which was the sacrifice for us. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above, every, above all other names that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the name and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father was thinking about how on earth do I illustrate this? Because this is something that God does in you. And I don't know, I was thinking to myself, I don't know that there is a story that I could share. Maybe I could get a, you know, a couple glasses and pour one out and then pour more in. And be like, hey, God wants you to pour yourself out so you can pour him in. You know, or something like that. I was just thinking, like, what, what, what could I do to tell this story? And so last night, I was, I was really stuck here. And we had a crazy weekend, and we were getting everything ready for the party. And I, I, was, I was sitting there at my office. It was 9 o'clock, and I was 8.58 at night. And I was just stuck right here. Didn't know what God wanted to do. I was saying, Lord, how do I illustrate this? Uh, show me. And Anna texted me, and she said, hey, uh, I know it's 9. I'm going to bed praying for you. Hope you have a great night. I'll see you in the morning. Try not to wake us up. And I thought, okay, great. I got a little extra time. So I, I started to work even more on this, and I was just landing nowhere until all of a sudden I felt like the Lord laid on my heart worship. So I turned on a worship song, and the worship song, it's an old song, Holy and Anointed One. It was in, from the 80s. Vineyard Worship started out. They, they were the ones who kind of launched into it. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. I bet you're going to hear it around here a little bit. So I, I was just listening to it, and I, as I was listening to it, the Lord, there's this, there's this, this, it's like a second chorus slash bridge. And it says, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you more than anything. 
And I remember as I would hit that more than anything, I started to cry. And then I would sing it again, and I rewound it again and sing it again. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. Jesus, I love you, I love you. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you more than anything. And I just cry again. And then all of a sudden, I got on my knees because I couldn't sit in my chair anymore. And I was listening to it, and I was crying again more than anything, more than anything. And then I got these tissues, and I'm thinking, man, my son's going to come out here and think, oh, great, Dad's lost it again. He's face first at his desk crying, you know, listening to music. What, what has happened to Dad? But every time I said more than anything, I'd just weep more and more and listen through the song, and I'd sing more than anything, and I'd weep again. And then the leader came on there, and he said something so profound. He said, when we sing more than anything, we're making room for Jesus, I love you. He said, every time we declare more than anything, what we're doing is we're clearing out everything that's not him. We're emptying out that space in our spirit that's not him. And so we're making room for more of Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you more than anything. Listen, calling is not about what you do Calling is participation. Calling is participating in the things of God by Him. It's not about, calling is not about what I do. It's about becoming a conduit that God can work through. Which means our number one calling is to worship Jesus. Our number one calling is to worship Him more than anything. And what Mordecai is saying to Esther is, if you will empty out what you are holding onto, it will make more room for what God wants to do. If you will just empty it out, make him more important than anything, then all of a sudden God will have the space to do in you what he needs to do in you so that he can begin to do through you what you know he longs to do through you. It's the second thing he says to Esther. Now we'll get to the the big moment. Esther 4 verse 14. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Who knows if perhaps it's in past tense in the Hebrew. He's saying, in other words, he's saying this is a past tense thing. Who knows that in your past, and the word that he uses for such a time is the Greek translation kairos. There are two Greek words for time that we have to know. There's the word chronos, which means sequential time, right? It's second, minute, hour, day, okay? So when we say I'll be there in 15 minutes, we're saying my chronos is 15 minutes. But the Greek also have another word for time, and we don't even have an English translation for it because it's such a powerful word. And it's the word kairos, and it is a word that means a season or a moment of tremendous significance. So he is saying to Esther, let's put it all together, he's saying, Esther, maybe this thing you went through in your past has prepared you for a moment right now that God wants to use. Maybe what you have gone through in your past has prepared you right now for a moment that God wants to use. I've told you before, I, man, I, I grew up with a super dysfunctional um, relationship with my dad, and that's no disrespect to my dad. I actually loved my dad. I wanted to be like my dad, and I longed for uh, my dad. And unfortunately, he spent over half my adult life in, in prison before he passed away. And uh, it was part of my life that I never really understood. 
In fact, I think a lot of the dysfunction that I sowed as a teenager and into my future was a result of that unresolved just uh, hurt and bitterness and anger and frustration and confusion that was caused along the way, uh, whether it be going to a sports banquet and sitting alone and seeing, you know, all of my friends have their dads pinning their letters on them. And I have some assistant coach that's like, come here, buddy, you know, put that letter on you. You know, God, God bless you. We're sorry your dad's not here, you know. Like, it just, it just felt like such an outcast. I remember when I turned 16 and I had bought a car, $500 Oldsmobile, gray Oldsmobile Cutlass, 1985 Cutlass. Yeah. I remember driving that thing to prison. Boy, I'm a G, huh? You didn't know I was like that, huh? Got a 1985 Oldsmobile Cutlass driving it. It even had the, the Hail Mary on it. I bought it from a Catholic guy. It had the Hail Mary on it and everything. I had Mary on my dashboard rolling in my Cutlass, right? Pulling up to prison, texting my friends. I didn't have a cell phone at that time. But I remember I pulled up there, and uh, I waited for two hours, put my license down through security, sat down at the glass, picked up a phone, and was telling dad about my car. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I wish I could take you around in my car. I wish I could show you what I have, but I can't show you. I can only tell you because of everything that we've gone through together. And it was just, it was so dysfunctional, and it was so hurtful. And then about a month and a half ago, uh, a friend of mine reached out to me, and he said, hey, I want you to have a conversation with a lady that I work with. And I said, okay, uh, what's it about? And he said, well, she is uh, the head over all of publishing with Uversion. And she said, so she is the one who determines content partners and everything else, and I saw a season that you guys just did, and I, wanna, I want you to, to share with her about it. So we get on this Zoom call. And I remember sitting on this Zoom call, and there were these two ladies on there. One was the head of publishing with Uversion. The other one was just part of, of Life Church. And uh, they asked me to tell the story, and I told them about the church. I said, man, uh, church, here's, here's what we've done. Here's what's happened. Uh, here's how God's been faithful. And she said, okay, now tell me about you. And I said, well, I'm married, you know, incredible woman. I have three kids. She said, okay, tell me more about you. And I was like, what do you mean? How was your childhood? And I said, well, it was kind of a mess. And I shared the story with her and I began to tell her about the story and uh, about dad and everything else and before I knew it we're sitting on a zoom and these two ladies are crying and she said the biggest void that we have on you version right now is resources for parent or for kids without fathers this fatherless void this fatherless wound she said would you be willing to put something together and I said man I guess so and she said your story is so, and listen, this is not of me, this is of the Lord, but she said, your story has so much significance for other people. And you know, that's the first time I've heard that. I always grew up thinking my childhood was a mess. In fact, I grew up thinking I was just an inadequate young man because I didn't have what I longed for. And then when dad passed away, it was complicated. And that was the first time people began to really speak life into it and say, you know what, this, this is great. This is content we want. And so I sat down, and in one day, I wrote a devotional, and on July 22nd, it went live on version. Today's August 22nd, and I got an email. Um, you know what the number one performing devotional over the last 30 days in that category has been on version. It's been Finding Dad. It's been people, but, yeah. That's cool. And, and you know, it's, that's great. That's, that's for the Lord to get glory for. But here's what I want to share with you. 
For me, that's not a triumphant story. For me, that's some of the most hurtful seasons I've ever gone through in my life. For me, that's some of the most difficult things I've ever seen and experienced. And for me, putting them on paper was a vulnerability I wasn't ready for, to be honest with you. I remember typing and and getting choked up again and again and again. And yet we have heard from hundreds, literally hundreds, thousands of people have read it. And hundreds of people have responded that God is meeting them in the same place. I tell you that to say this. Maybe something has happened in your past. And maybe... God is ready to use it as ministry in your future. Will you embrace the discomfort to get there? Will you embrace and will you not get so distracted with comfort over calling that you're afraid to step into the discomfort and to find what God wants you to do and then to move forward and use it for ministry? That's the story of Esther chapter 4.